Hello and welcome to the Field Architecture Podcast, a podcast about architecture and the real world. My name is René Boer and I'm here with my two co-hosts, Charlie Clemos. Hello. And a new co-host, Juana Salcedo. Hi. Before we jump in, uh, Juana, this is the first time you're also co-hosting the, the podcast and you joined Field Architecture a year ago. Would you maybe like to introduce yourself? So, yeah, uh, I'm from Bogota. I'm currently based here. And it's been over a year since we uh, formed a new team. And it's been really exciting to start and expand this global conversation. And what do you do in daily life other than working on field architecture? I work as a design consultant and I also teach at the university. Sounds really good. Hey, and Charlie, before we jump into the episode, maybe you could introduce what you've been working on. It has been quite a while you've been working on this, right? Yeah, I've been working on this project or this particular subject, which, as the title suggests, is the drug heroin and its relationship to urban development for maybe about half a decade now. And I've been working on this podcast for at least two years. And as that suggests, it's it's, it's quite a difficult subject to engage with. Heroin is a drug that's kind of surrounded by a lot of fear. It's um, sort of shrouded in a level of mystique. It's kind of the extreme drug that we're all warded off in our youth. So it's, it's quite a difficult subject to talk in, you know, concrete terms about. Uh, but I, I find looking at heroin and its effects on the city an interesting way of understanding how how our idea of the city and the urban is produced. I also think that it's a really good entry point into looking at the way that big shifts in the global economy and geopolitics percolate to the local level. And also I'm interested in the way that like the the representation of heroin has given us a very, very like distinct idea of what cities are like to this day. But I also wanted to challenge that. I wanted to challenge this idea that heroin is an urban thing, that it's confined within the inner city, which is an idea we get from films like uh, Train Spotting and The Connection and Midnight Cowboy and loads of others. That's fascinating. But, but why would it be interesting to talk about this right now? Why now? Well, for at least several decades now, under the surface, heroin has moved to non-urban areas or historically places that were unaffected by it. And we need to kind of catch up with that that reality on the ground. I think people are still generally attached to the idea that heroin and other opioids are kind of confined to the city. And because of this, there's a big gap in terms of uh, our sort of treatment of the problem and our understanding of how much it's affecting different places and different people who don't reside in the places where we expect it to be. Yeah, uh, it's interesting. We had a lot of discussions how uh, also this issue kind of directly surrounded the uh, the immediate environment of uh, the field architecture uh, office in the in the red light district in uh, in Amsterdam, and how that was also an epicenter. So that kind of discussion also influenced, or at least my thinking, but maybe also a bit of your thinking uh, about it. But um, Juana, I was also wondering how do, how do you look at this conversation from the perspective of Bogota? Um, yeah, I think I was very compelled by this podcast, and I really hope all of you enjoy it because what it really shows is how ubiquitous it is, but also how, even if it's 
ubiquitous and it is everywhere. It is everywhere in a very uneven way. And so from my perspective, even and being born in Colombia, where drugs have permeated and shaped all levels of, of society, of course, from a consumer point of view, but more over from a producer point of view. And it has really shaped uh, our internal conflict and also issues of rural development. Uh, so here, what it really does is to, uh, Charlie's podcast does, is to trace this movement of drugs beyond this idea of being confined in, in the urban realm. That's really interesting because that is a big part of why history and the present kind of come together in this podcast is because it's never really been an urban phenomenon. It's always only been an urban phenomenon because we've ignored the the production side of of where where drugs come from, right? Uh, deliberately, that's shielded from view in the big representation. Wow, uh, really, really fascinating. This actually sounds like we should do a uh, a follow up uh, podcast about this uh, very soon. So that that would be great. But yeah, let's uh, without further ado, let's let's start this actually episode, right? I'm uh, I'm very curious to listen in full. Great. Heroin is hard to place. That's basically the point of this episode. To place heroin. Movies, music, literature, the news, public service announcements and school curricula all have helped concentrate our idea of where heroin occurs, usually placing it at the very final point of consumption. A spectacular image of a person shooting up, often their first time, a fateful choice to mark a string of bad choices to follow. If we're ever given any idea of where that choice is made, then it's invariably some vaguely urban context. Why the heroine ended up there, and not someplace else, is rarely explained, and certainly not in terms of any of the wider socio-economic conditions that prevail in that place. Whether or not it was ever true, this association between heroin and the city is becoming less and less easy to sustain in a globalised world which has forced all but the most economically productive subjects from the centre of cities and out to the periphery, while at the same time still managing to support supply chains that can bring heroin and all manner of other opioids to even the most far-flung places. But even before our present hyper-globalised moment, Heroin was only ever a drug of the city, because we were taught to ignore the whole geography of production and distribution that has tended to encompass large parts of East, Southeast and Southwest Asia where the opium poppy could be cultivated, which were often quite remote from any urban centre. By hiding this more extensive geography, and focusing instead on the individual and the urban, this representation of heroin avoids a proper confrontation with the often very intentional harm caused to vast swathes of humanity who have been exposed to the drug over the past century. As such, in this episode we're going to zoom out and try to connect the dots between some of the disparate spaces and places that have been touched by heroin, exploring some of the main historical shifts in where heroin is produced, who uses it, how it gets to the places where it's used, and why it ends up in these places. But before we get ahead of ourselves, it's probably good to establish, first of all, what heroin actually is, and how it relates to other similar drugs we'll be talking about. Heroin is the brand name which was given to the chemical diamorphine in 1895 by German pharmaceutical company Bayer. 
The name was chosen by their research team for the heroic feeling the drug engendered in those who took it. It was first synthesized from morphine in 1874 by the English chemist C.R. Alder Wright, but only brought to market after it was resynthesized two decades later by Felix Hoffman, a chemist at Bayer. Along with its name, Bayer marketed heroin as a non-addictive alternative to morphine, a move with echoes in Purdue Pharma's marketing of the related opioid, OxyContin, almost a century later, with similarly tragic results. Both morphine and heroin are opioids, meaning that they interact with the opioid receptors in our brain and body, eliciting feelings of euphoria, providing pain relief and suppressing coughs, among other things. Like morphine, heroin is ultimately derived from the opium poppy, unlike other more recently synthesized opioids like the aforementioned OxyContin, and also the fentanyl class of opioids, which are a product of chemical manipulation, usually involving the base chemical piperidine. As I mentioned, the naming of heroin and other related opioids speaks to a general difficulty in placing heroin. The geography of heroin, where it's produced, where it's used, how it gets to the places where it's used, and why it ends up in these places, all this has hardly ever really been tied together or mapped. Instead, we tend to get fed this incredibly fragmented picture, which mostly concentrates on what it's like to be on heroin, and the tragic personal failings of the individual user. For instance, here's the 1997 version of the American Public Service announcement, This is your brain on drugs. This is your brain. And this is heroin. The clip stars Rachel Lee Cook, who incidentally played Lenny Boggs in teen rom-com She's All That, who is shown smashing eggs with a frying pan to illustrate the apparent effect of heroin. This is what happens to your brain after snorting heroin. And this is what your body goes through. Wait, it's not over yet. This is what your family goes through. And your friends and your mind. And your drugs. Sure. And your life. Any questions? I have some questions. Why is so little ever said about the social and economic conditions in the places where heroin use happens? Joblessness, desperation, isolation, anxiety, but also more specific geographic details like how much access a place has to global drug markets, how little access it has to proper healthcare provision, and how much it has been impacted by the long-term effects of deindustrialization. All these things are subordinated to a narrative of personal choice. Is heroin addiction the result of a choice? Is it a question of personal responsibility? Are all these things that happen to a heroin user bound to happen? Or does the heroin user's vilification and criminalization by mainstream society at the very least facilitate their tragic descent? Here's another public service announcement broadcast in the UK in 1985. Okay, so I do heroin a bit now. I can control it. I could stop. If I wanted to. There's no way I want to become an addict. I just do heroin. It's no problem. Look, I've got this thing under control. I've just got a touch of flu today. Everyone thinks they can control heroin until it starts to control them. I could give up tomorrow, couldn't I? Entitled, 
Heroin Screws You Up. This was the first heroin-related public service announcement in Britain following the sudden spike in heroin epidemics that occurred in the early 1980s, first in Liverpool, Glasgow, Edinburgh and London, which came as a result of the increased availability of Southwest Asian brown heroin. Why this sudden availability? It's difficult to say, but this was also at around the same time that the United States government began its tacit support of Afghan warlords like Hekmachar Gulbuddin, Mullah Nassim Akhundzada, Ishmat Muslim and Haji Ayub Afridi in their fight against the communist government in Afghanistan. These warlords financed their efforts by dramatically expanding opium production, which doubled to 575 metric tons between 1982 and 1983 alone. This, according to Vanda Felbab Brown in her book Shooting Up, Counterinsurgency and the War on Drugs, published in 2009 by Brookings. If you've watched Blade Runner, you might have recognised the Vangelis soundtrack backing the Heroin Screws You Up clip. It's a fitting sound for the rest of the setting, which is about as bleak as Blade Runner. The guy speaking stands in this cavernous, grey, industrial space, a space which is pretty common in depictions of heroin use. Very grim, very urban, the implication being that heroin is an urban phenomenon, no hint of its provenance in rural Afghanistan. And this is about as close as you ever get to an engagement with the actual geography of heroin. It's all in the background and it's all about the point of consumption. Nothing explicit, lest the audience be allowed to engage properly with the wider situation in the places impacted by heroin and the wider global situation which brought heroin there in the first place. No, instead focus on the user, their personal experience, not on the environment, the conditions, the space. At around the same time that Heroin Screws You Up was first broadcast, another campaign launched in Scotland taking the theme, Choose Life. This slogan provided the basis for the famous Choose Life speech which opens and closes the 1996 film Trainspotting. Choose life, choose a job, choose a career, choose a family. Choose a fucking big television. Choose washing machines, cars, compact displays and electrical tin openers. <laughs> Choose good health, low cholesterol and dental insurance. Choose fixed interest mortgage repayments. Choose a starter home. Choose your friends. Choose leisure wear and matching luggage. Choose a three-piece suite on higher purchase and a range of fucking fabrics. Choose DIY and wondering who the fuck you are on a Sunday morning. Choose sitting on that couch watching mind-numbing, spirit-crushing game shows, stuffing fucking junk food into your mouth. It goes on a bit longer, but I thought I'd skip to the important bit at the end of this speech. But why would I want to do a thing like that? I chose not to choose life. I chose something else. And the reasons? There are no reasons. Who needs reasons when you've got head on? All this is being said while the action cuts between the main character Renton taking a hit of heroin at his dealer's house, playing in a five-a-side football match with his mates, and being chased through the centre of Edinburgh after he and his friend are caught shoplifting. In the football game, the opposing side have matching kits, play by the rules and look vigorous and healthy. Renton's team, meanwhile, are a group of individuals. They cheat, and their appearance is untidy. 
taken together with his visible euphoria at the dealer's house and the rush of the chase, Renton's life is set up as an exciting rejection of mainstream society. The choice he keeps talking about is either to be subjected to the boring and aggressively mundane structures of ordinary society or give it all up for heroin and a life of crime and disorder. It may seem more raw, realistic and true to the actual experience of the heroin user, but the film's emphasis on personal choice is still there, front and centre. Whether you see the descent into heroin addiction as heroic or shocking, either way, the person concerned is usually depicted as having made a choice to reject mainstream society, to give it all up for a drug. Even in this sympathetic portrayal, rarely do we get the impression of the mundane, everyday reality of just trying to keep withdrawal sickness at bay. Every six hours you need to have a shot, you need to have it, but uh, you go on. It, it, when, when you make money, when you go with the man, you make the money and you shoot it up and, uh, and, and you go again, you know, to work. That's Sonja Groot Obink, who for 25 years used heroin while living and often sleeping rough in Amsterdam's red light district, primarily supporting her habit through sex work and scamming tourists. Since entering treatment for her addiction, she's been giving homeless tours of the red light district. Here she was explaining the way that addiction to heroin binds a person to a very rigid routine, entirely determined by the need to fight the symptoms of withdrawal. Especially on a Sunday, it was a very bad day. And when there's no tourists, you know, it's, it's uh, yeah, then, then, then you was, then you had to also do slowly with your drugs to survive the six hours, yeah. As Sonia explained, this experience of dependency can be likened to a diabetic being denied insulin. I'm uh, I'm still on the methadone, and uh, I'm a couple of years uh, I, I don't uh, do use drugs anymore, but I'm still on the methadone, and, uh, and I take methadone because uh, that I can go on with uh, that I can work. Uh, I, I I do I, I'm tour guide. When I have a group, you know, sometimes we have a discussion, and uh, when I say when I say uh, yes, I'm still on the methadone because because in the methadone is a, is is a little piece of what is also in heroin because otherwise because if you don't take heroin you get sick and uh, then the people say, and uh, then the people say yeah but uh, uh, then 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 you still do drugs I said no I said you can you can uh, I, I see it like when some when some people are uh, diabetic they need insulin for to get 24 hours that they can have a normal life I take methadone that I can have a normal life. Yeah, but you could choose to take drugs and a diabetic, uh, she gets sick for so. I said, I said, yeah, but I have the sickness from addiction. I, I try to, uh, to, to explain the people why I take the methadone because they see it like a drug. This diabetes analogy is also elaborated in the heroin users. A brilliant memoir by the pseudonymous author, Tam Stewart, a heroin user in Liverpool in the 1980s. Talking to fellow heroin user Dougie, she writes, The addict experiences a crushing sense of being hopelessly trapped. All his actions are manipulated by bodily need. Drug addiction is recognised by many as a kind of illness. And Dougie echoed that view when he said, I'm tired of living like a fucking diabetic. He was referring to his need for daily injections, registering the frustration of knowing that his life revolves around a drug. In the case of the diabetic, however, Everyone is at pains to ensure his supply, smooth his path, make life easy and convenient for him. Indeed, no one would wish it otherwise. The same certainly cannot be said for the heroin user, 
whose goal faces the obstacles of customs, police, screws, government, doctors, social workers, his family and friends. Given that Renton does encounter a lot of these barriers in the course of the film, it's maybe a bit unfair to dismiss the entire experience of heroin use that it represents. Still, a lot of the dreary reality of heroin dependency, a dependency which in some ways binds those addicted to heroin even more tightly to patterns of capitalist consumption, is subordinated to an exciting story arc that affords Renton a remarkable amount of personal agency, as is underlined when Renton picks up the Choose Life mantra at the end of the film. I could offer a million answers, all false. The truth is that I'm a bad person, but that's going to change. I'm going to change. This is the last of that sort of thing. I'm cleaning up and I'm moving on, going straight and choosing life. I'm looking forward to it already. I'm going to be just like you. The job, the family, the fucking big television, the washing machine, the car, the compact disc and electrical tin opener, good health, low cholesterol, dental insurance, mortgage, starter home, leisure wear, luggage, three-piece suite, DIY, game shows, junk food, children, walks in the park, nine to five, good at golf, washing the car, choice of sweaters, family Christmas, index pension, tax exemption, clearing gutters, getting by, looking ahead, the day you die. Anyone with even a passing experience of suburbia will be familiar with this list. Renton may be walking through the centre of London as his voiceover says all this, but his choice of life in this final scene is a choice of suburban life. But even if we're only talking about its points of consumption, heroin is not urban per se. It's just that at the time, the global heroin market vastly favoured a few globally connected urban centres that were disproportionately affected by deindustrialization. In his book Dreamland, the true tale of America's opiate epidemic, Los Angeles-based journalist Sam Quinones traces the various causes of the now decades-long opioid epidemic that first hit America in the early 1990s, especially impacting suburbia, smaller towns, and former industrial cities inland. Basically everywhere people didn't expect this problem to occur. You go through a lot of neighborhoods, wealthy neighborhoods, and they're all anonymous. No one's out on the street. Everyone's buttoned up in their in their houses. And it's in those neighborhoods that are very well to do. No need, economic need is not met in those neighborhoods where people are dying and getting addicted and dying from drugs used to numb pain. You look at their you look at their streets, you go, what pain could you possibly have? You know, you have big cars, you have a nice big house, big green lawn, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, 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 and yet it's in those the guy who first pointed this out to me was a fairly underpaid police officer um, in the, the Charlotte, North Carolina area who, who, who took me through one of these, these suburbs and said, look at this. These people are dying from pain pills. What pain, man? Look at this, man. Every, I've arrested this guy's son and that guy and over there and over there. All these different people he was pointing out to me, these houses, he took me on a tour of about two hours. And the whole time he's going, why, you know, I mean, what don't they have? They have everything that anybody, the wealthiest people in history of the planet. Well, you know, they, they don't have any connection. They don't have any community. They don't have any soul in a sense. You know what I mean? It's like lacking that. And, and you can see that in the very uh, dis- urban design that you you see it's everyone there's no sidewalks sometimes when there are you don't see anybody on them the parks are are so sad those parks are so sad nobody's ever in them 
Dreamland narrates an incredible story of the various people and policies responsible for America's opioid epidemic. We'll come back to this story later on, but for now I wanted to draw attention to something that Sam said about the culture in these places, because it bears striking echoes in Renton's final speech at the end of Trainspotting. We had all this stuff, you know, we had, we had big cars and big houses and, and we had big TVs and we had jet skis and all this stuff. And what we lacked was the, in those areas was the most important thing, which was some kind of human uh, connection. And it was through that, you know, what is heroin, if not the ultimate uh, drug to send you into your own isolated little little bubble. It's like the, the the final expression of all that is heroin. The final expression of the idea that these uh, s- suburbs stand for, which is that you can buy happiness, buy enough stuff, you'll be happy. Uh, buy enough jet skis and SUVs and what have you, and you'll be happy. Well, heroin's the final expression of of all that. You know, it's the opiate class of drugs in general. You know, pills, heroin, fentanyl, whatever you want to do, is the final expression of what that urban geography or the suburban, I should say, geography is is all about, which is that we can buy happiness. We can escape the problems of the world. We can escape the crime and the the cluttered nature of it and the the, the crowded conditions of New York City or someplace like that by moving out to a place where we all have our own little park. It's called our backyard. We don't have to associate it. We don't have to go to a public swimming pool because we all have swimming pools. You know, and then what does that bring? It brings, well, gee, you know, the worst drug addiction that we've ever seen in this country. And what's interesting about this epidemic from an urban urbanist point of view, I would say, is that this is an opiate epidemic that did not take place in in the place where places where we Americans are used to seeing that. And, and that would be um the urban area you know heroin really grew for, certainly in the post world war ii era uh, up as a as a drug for the urban outcasts it was in harlem it was in new york city it was folks who lived in like the very core of our cities charlie parker had a lot to do with that he the great jazz musician he was also a heroin addict and all these young musicians wanted badly to play like like bird and and they thought that heroin was part of doing that and so it became part of the culture and dealers knew to hang out with jazz musicians if they could sell dope that way and that kind of thing this is a clip from shirley clark's 1963 film the connection representing one of the few sympathetic contemporary depictions of heroin use in america's late 50s jazz scene it gives a pretty decent flavor of the cool detachment and estrangement felt by people who used heroin in this context. I'll leave it running so you can hear the monologue of Sam, played by Jim Anderson. You know, they got a saying in this world. It isn't the shit that will do you in, it's the lack of it. Now, I steal, but I only steal from people I don't like. You see, I wouldn't take a matchstick from a friend of mine. Look, Mr. Dunn, uh, Mr. Dunn, uh, I-, I like telling stories best, but, well, right now I'm kind of sick. I mean, you can understand. You've seen a lot of movies of fellas like me. 
It's torturous. Now look, I, I could use five more bucks. Only until I get paid. I'm supposed to see this fella about a job next week. Sally introduced me. Hey, didn't you, Sally? Well, anyhow, I'm gonna be rolling in the bread then. But now I'm sort of down. Look, I got some powerful stories in me when that shit is flowing through my veins. So, how about it, huh, Mr. Dunn? Not now, Sam. I, I, I'm busy. See me later. Uh, yeah, yeah, okay. Well, I'm gonna go on lay down a while. Yes. Based on a play of the same name, the connection takes place in the apartment of a group of heroin users who are being filmed for a fly-on-the-ball documentary, a kind of film within a film. Between a series of long jazz improvisations, the characters anxiously pace the apartment waiting for their heroin dealer, The Connection, frequently breaking the fourth wall, either to berate the pretentious director or present their outlook on life. It's a great film and really quite honest for its time, but even so, the role of the jazz scene in the spread of heroin in America is controversial to say the least. Because this link helped forge an association between heroin and African Americans newly arrived in northern cities after the Great Migration from the southern states of America. An association which was deliberately amplified as a way of criminalising a community perceived as a threat to the status quo. And while heroin did proliferate in the jazz scene at this time, the impact of the wider geopolitical situation rarely factors into this story. Heroin had mostly disappeared from the United States during the Second World War. While the reduction in commercial shipping drastically reduced the possibilities for smuggling, the FBI had also seriously undermined the power of the once mighty National Crime Syndicate, a group composed of the main families of the American Mafia, whose leader, Charlie Lucky Luciano, was at that time in prison, as were several of his underlings. Meanwhile, the American Mafia's counterparts in Italy and Corsica also found themselves seriously constrained by their respective fascist governments. But the Mafia bounced back following their assistance in the Allied war effort, and, afterwards, against the rising power of the Communists in both Italy and France. Following the war, they were basically allowed to re-establish their lucrative heroin trafficking operations, which brought heroin from Turkey through Marseille and onto the US and Canada. These trafficking operations, which came to be known as the French Connection, are what brought heroin to the 1950s jazz scene, whose associated clubs harboured a fledgling counterculture that was already somewhat susceptible to a euphoric, pain-relieving drug. Amid the aggressively conformist and racist atmosphere of post-war American society, these clubs provided a space for young outsiders of various backgrounds to gain what the late historian Eric Schneider calls drug knowledge, from older figures who, like Charlie Parker, had often developed addiction from painkiller medication upon their return from the Second World War. In his book Smack, Heroin and the American City, Schneider explores the role that heroin played in urban America from the mid-century onwards. Here he is talking about drug knowledge on the Penn Press podcast in 2011. There's a cultural explanation for heroin use, and it would go something like, I like playing the saxophone, I know that Charlie Parker is the best saxophone player in the world. And if I want to play the saxophone like Charlie Parker, who I know is a heroin user, then I have to start using heroin too. But that knowledge that, her that Charlie Parker is a heroin user is absolutely useless to you unless you're in a place where you can encounter experienced users. The jazz clubs on what was called 
Swing Alley, 52nd Street, in the west side of Manhattan, was one such place that brought together uh, jazz musicians and their hangers-on, all kinds of fans. Jazz was the big popular music of the 1940s and early 50s, something which is usually forgotten because of rock and roll. Uh, And it brought together all of these people in these little jazz clubs that had their origins as speakeasies. So right there you have the connection to the underworld, and with the end of Prohibition, uh, they uh, attracted all kinds of people to listen to the jazz, but the underworld connection was already there, and it was easy to uh, have that ripple out into a larger community. With punk rock, you have essentially a similar phenomenon occurring in the late 1970s, where there were specific punk rock clubs that uh, casual fans of the music might show up, and if they had a desire to flirt with the dark side, and heroin has always been the kind of emblematic drug, the king of all drugs, the, the, the most notorious drug, then this was a place where they could acquire drug knowledge, hang out with experienced users, learn how much of the drug to use, and then become involved in drug use themselves. Sonia's early experience with heroin in Amsterdam implies a similar role of drug knowledge. I came to work in a bar and in a night shift, a night cafe, and um, I, I run that there, and I was, uh, I was saying to myself, I see my mother is not right, I can't do this and that. And, but it was also the first time that I come in to, to see the first time the drugs, because uh, that, uh, that, that, that I was starting when, when I was 18, something like that. And um, the bar was uh, with, with an Englishman, and uh, he say, and uh, we 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 come close at three o'clock, and then the people from the from the red light district they come to the Harlem Dyke, uh, to the Harlem Streets, and there we have our uh, uh, bar. We didn't open up, but they call to the to the to, to where the letters come in the briefcase, they they knock, yeah. and I open, and then we go on, and uh, we go on until uh, yeah. Until the daytime, until uh, yeah, and and then I come, uh, I I take my first drugs. Now, actually, because there's too much noise and the people uh, they were complaining, the the body kept closed, and uh, that was the first time I come in the jail. Uh, I stayed there only one month. Uh, not so small, not so long time. I come out and I start right away. But uh, how you have to make your money uh, and uh, to to buy your drugs. And I fell down in the prostitution, in the street prostitution, and um, and when was this in particular? Like what what year? Eighties. Eighties. Yeah, no, late eighties, late eighties. Begin. Yeah, late eighties, late eighties, something like okay. this. And yeah. and my my use my use from drugs get worse today because um, uh, I uh, then I start to doing heroin with it. And I starting up shooting up with a needle in my arm, uh, heroin and cocaine. I asked Sonia how available heroin was in the center of Amsterdam at the time she was using it. There, there were all deals walking around, uh, just very, very busy, very busy, uh, and uh, in every corner, every street, where you could, where you walk, and and uh, yeah, and and especially because you are twenty four hours in this neighborhood, yeah. You say you, you know you know them all. This 
you yeah you you could buy every, everywhere everywhere as Sonia's experience suggests heroin use was something that entailed ready access to the drug and ready access to a space where heroin use happens due to the underlying structure of the global economy these spaces were relatively limited throughout most of the 20th century they had to have some kind of direct trade link to regions where the opium poppy can be grown china vietnam thailand laos burma turkey iran afghanistan so they usually had to be ports and certainly had to be places of transit amsterdam london marseille montreal berlin but the same qualities of transit that gave these places access to heroin also endeared them to the kind of people who may have been out of place in more provincial settings and it is from this combination of social rejection and access to heroin supply in a handful of cities that were simultaneously undergoing the long-term effects of deindustrialization that heroin acquired its distinct urban quality where it became essentially urban and bohemian and all this was helped by the creative output from some of those people who used heroin in these places this link between heroin art and the city is explored in a 2014 documentary for BBC Radio 4 entitled Heroin hosted by Professor Andrew Hussey the documentary navigates the difficult question of whether there's such a thing as a heroin aesthetic and how artists who have used heroin interact with their environment i went to meet professor hussey in his office in paris here he is talking about what in his view defines the heroin city in terms of space in terms of urban space although heroin is a global phenomenon i do think it's possible to talk about the heroin city or heroin cities and in the west particularly i think new york um berlin um maybe paris not in the west but close to the west um tangier but um if we look at for example new york and we look at you know the representation of heroin in new york well there's filmic representations in things like the man with the golden arm and stuff like that but more than anything else it finds its expression in music and one of my starting points was i was always fascinated by the velvet underground i've been in love with the velvet underground ever since i first heard them when i was about 14 and one of the things i loved about them was something to do with the space in their music i'm fascinated by drones i love drones in music and it's something that which is sort of like medieval and ancient but it seems to me that I'm hoping in on the velvet underground in new york that it's something to do with how heroin feels and it's got to be very different from the psychedelic experience which as we know is colorful and expansive and full of visions there's something else there's something interior there's something inside you're listening to heroin from the velvet underground's untitled first album just where i'm going first velvet underground album you could actually read as if you like a transliteration 
of a day in the life of a junkie in New York, mm. as simple as that, with all the variations, as you say, in, 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 of speed. You start off with um, Sunday morning, languorous, mm. full of guilt, full of dread. Sunday morning brings the dawning. It's just a restless feeling. And then it's followed up by waiting for the man, which is jittery, which is cold turkey, which is I need this stuff. And of course, the, the killer track is itself heroin. And I think the thing with heroin, the song, is it starts off, if you listen to the rough demo versions, as a kind of imitation of Bob Dylan, if you can believe it. And by the time it gets to the studio, it's turned into this full-on, the nearest thing that music can do to recreate the heroin experience, to recreate that up and down, the movement of speed, the movement of, from the languorous kind of gentleness into that jagged effect in one song, I think, I think is um, it's very incredibly powerful. And if we are moving on to Berlin, I spent some time in Berlin looking at um, the way that heroin had influenced culture in Berlin. And I found something else which related it to New York, but it was something else as well. And it was this. It was that um, heroin in Berlin during the 70s and 80s was quite freely available and very good coming from Eastern Europe through the communist bloc. Uh, the guy who knows about this is a guy called Mark Reeder, who's a Manchester guy who's lived there since the 70s. And he was the, he was the factory records operative in Berlin for a long time. And, you know, he knew all the people in the scene around Christiana F and all of that kind of thing. And, um, you know, what Mark talks about is that what created a lot of the tensions in Berlin were um, heroin droughts, so the you know when the city ran out of heroin, that's when the music became tense, claustrophobic, very violent and very angry. And I'm thinking here of Nick Cave and the birthday party and that sense of claustrophobia. There's something to do with the in, ins and outs of heroin doing something physical to the body, which is not the same as acid or pot or any kind of psychedelic thing. Now the third city I was going to mention was Tangier. And that's a little bit more difficult because obviously the key writer on heroin in Tangier was William Burroughs. And the thing with Tangier, you've got to remember as well that Burroughs was there, the Beats came there, and they thought they were discovering a new civilization, a new world, which was Arab, Islam, etc., etc. They were complete Orientalists without being racists. And what they were really doing was saying no to post-war America, to consumerism, commodity culture, and so on. And what they found in Tangier was a kind of dream or nightmare at the end of the world. So really their experience in Tangier was not about the East, which they knew nothing about. Um, it was about the West, and heroin was a conduit into that. This is an excerpt from the 1983 film, Burroughs, the movie.
in January 1953, in the days that I remember him first in Tangier, he was full of the most extraordinary energy. He could punch a typewriter or he could punch a tape recorder to death in shorter time than any man that I've ever known. He had such enormous energy in those days and such enormous intention behind what he was doing. The person talking just then was Brian Jissin, who Burroughs lived with in Tangier, where they together developed Burroughs' famous cut-up technique. After Jissin, it's Burroughs himself speaking. He lived in a very comfortable hotel where he practiced pistol shooting and typewriting and was extraordinarily amusing. And during the years in Tangier, he had written a very, very great deal in a rather short time. <clears throat> I wrote very intensively for um, about two years. And this material, most of this material, um, went into Naked Lunch. That um, <clears throat> is, Naked Lunch was extracted from this uh, material. And uh, also, all the notes uh, that I had written while addicted over a period of eight years. He spent a great deal of his time dashing through the streets madly from one pharmacy to another, getting chemicals that he could use and boil down and inject. But gradually he began to become more and more invisible in the streets as the winter wore on. And all the Spanish kids called him the hombre invisible. What brings New York, Berlin and Tangier together is they're all marginal liminal spaces. But I think very often there are specific, you know, political or um, economic reasons why heroin takes hold in, in certain places. And I, I'm from Liverpool, and um, I, I remember in the early 80s, heroin taking a grip on a younger generation who'd never heard of William Burroughs or heard of Lou Reed, who were basically working class, unemployed, in a city that had been wrecked by um, um, aging capitalist forces. And I think there's a reason why that, that happens, the heroin takes hold. A, the city was flooded with um, cheap Iranian heroin, and B, it was ripe to fall into the, you know that kind of epidemic because it had a young population who could afford the drug and used it as a mass form of psychic self-defence. This idea of psychic self-defence, as Andrew uses it here, and before with Lou Reed and William Burroughs, is a helpful way of making sense of heroin's function for both writers and artists, and the marginalized and abandoned youth of places deemed economically expendable by society at large. Using heroin was a way to reject reality as it manifests in ordinary life. But not only that, it was also a way to transform this reality. One of the early proponents of the drug's transfigurative qualities was the Scottish novelist Alexander Trocchi, a one-time member of the avant-garde Situationist International. There's a very, very good description by Alex Trocchi when he's, in, he's on a barge in New York and he describes taking a shot of heroin at twilight and then looking out at the New York skyline, he sees the city transformed not by the forces of capital, but through the force of his own mind. Now, the Situationists, they thought of Trocchi as a kind of astronaut of inner space. They admired the way that he went into himself. And then the relationship between the subject and the object, between subjectivity and the city, is, is this is the key thing. It's overturned in a dialectical movement. All of a sudden, it is not the city that overwhelms and dominates the individual, but the individual who, as it were, finds his or her 
own subjectivity unleashed in the city. Now, in literary terms, this goes right back to the mid-19th century, with, um, and in particular, Gautier and Baudelaire. And what they used to do, anecdotally, was have the club, these Ashes Sham, which met um, on the Ile de la Cité, and they would experiment with where the subjectivity would go. And if you like, we can see this as the, as the birth of a kind of specifically modernist form of literature in which the artist transforms himself and then after that moment of transformation the art begins so rather than as it were the modern city dominating the the the, the subject it actually becomes the focus the canvas upon which the artist can paint his or her vision of reality and the situationist of course thought this was a very political as well it was a way of undermining the capitalist organization of the city and the big question that psychogeography asks is who owns the city is it capital is it labor is it you know the organization of transport to serve the needs of these things or can we live in a dream can we get lost in the city can we remake the city as a labyrinth and i think you know all drugs allowed situationists to conceive of, of new ways of being in the city in that way this idea that a person could transform the city through the force of their heroin-altered mind points to a wider concept of social change, which sees progress not as the product of collective action, but rather of individual self-expression. We already saw this with Trainspotting. The idea that choosing not to choose life somehow represents a rebellion against mainstream society. But a much more important manifestation of this idea can be found in the trajectory of various radical countercultural currents that developed in the United States and the wider world from the 1960s and into the 1970s, a time when heroin underwent a massive resurgence, in New York City in particular. It's a common misconception that the youth quake of the 1960s and 1970s was unified in its methods of opposition to the conservative mainstream. In fact, while many understood that political organising and collective struggle were the best, if not the only, genuinely effective means of challenging the entrenched power elite, always present was a more libertarian individualism that advocated instead for things like returning to the land and expanding people's minds. Confronted with the full force of the American repressive state apparatus, the youth who had once fueled the 60s radical movements increasingly embraced this libertarian individualist lifestyle contenting themselves with a retreat into a similar kind of ironic coolness as the earlier jazz scene. We see perhaps the most extreme and tragic manifestation of this growing detachment in the rising instance of heroin use in America during the course of the 1970s. Ironically, it was from the war in Vietnam, that great touchstone of the 60s radical upsurge, that this new heroin problem emerged. And its role suggests, again, that the detachment was less a choice and much more a product of very intentional economic and social policy. I think that one of the significant points about the Vietnam War and drugs is that there were two fronts in that war. There was, the, there was drug use on the home front, but there was a lot of drug use in Vietnam itself. This is a clip from The Drug Years, a four-part VH1 documentary released in 2006 about the history of illicit drug use in post-war American society. Drugs were a gift to a lot of these soldiers that were knee-deep in horror every day and saw the most repugnant things you could possibly imagine. Get really stoned. Then, you know, like who cares about the war? <laughs> it's the only way you can feel good in them, you know? Like How I'm... available is it? <laughs> 
Initially, it wasn't that easy to find heroin in Vietnam, but because of the CIA and their alliances with various warlords, suddenly South Vietnam was flooded with very pure, very cheap heroin. I was over in Vietnam a number of times with the EA saw stuff that was unbelievable. And this is one of the places GIs buy drugs. Sometimes they stay inside until after they've had their fix. Other addicts wait outside, and a girl comes out, passes them the heroin, and makes the sale. It's all done in broad daylight. I saw soldiers using drugs constantly. It was certainly accepted in the culture over there. I'm not sure I blamed them. I might have done the same thing. In the spring of 1970, you had two people overdosing a month. By that fall, there were two people overdosing a day. One in four servicemen became addicted to heroin. He came back a war hero, wounded twice, purple heart, but also a drug addict. He was a drug addict. Well, two things are happening. Number one, we're hearing about the soldiers becoming addicts, but we're also beginning to get flooded with heroin coming back from Vietnam. And one of the early cases I worked on was a group of sergeant majors in Vietnam who were shipping heroin back in body bags. There might have been soldiers bringing it back for their own use and maybe in small amounts to do business. But really, the heroin being smuggled famously back in body bags was being smuggled by the CIA. It was really to support the warlords of Thailand, who were our allies. It was to secure their favor. Many people would maintain that Air America, the CIA's operation in Southeast Asia, was responsible for a lot of the, the heroin that came in. The result was blowback. You know, more drugs on the streets of American cities. It was becoming obvious that there was a direct correlation between street crime and heroin addiction and this got nixon's attention very quickly we must wage what i have called total war against public enemy number one in the united states the problem of dangerous drugs it's rare to find a mainstream documentary make such a clear link between the war on drugs at home and the war against communism abroad this latter war created the conditions for the french connection to be displaced as the main source of the global heroin supply by the so-called Golden Triangle, an area where the borders of Thailand, Laos and Myanmar, then Burma, meet at the confluence of the Ruak and Mekong rivers. As alluded to in the clip, America's allies in the war against communism often funded their activities through opium smuggling, which would have been difficult to pull off without ready access to the sophisticated air transport capacities of the CIA's airline, Air America. And when the region began to host laboratories capable of producing grade 4 white heroin of the same quality as the labs in Marseille, they were all located in areas controlled by America's clients in the region. Meanwhile, 
This coincided with a coordinated crackdown on the French connection by French and US security services. Between 1970 and 1975, it went from supplying 80% of America's heroin to 15%. As Henrik Kruger says in his book, The Great Heroin Coup, the remarkable switch from Turkey, Marseille, USA, to Southeast Asia, Mexico, USA, shifted billions of dollars and the power that comes with it. Heroin ravaged New York City in the 1970s. To take one statistic, it's estimated that theft cost the city around $1.5 billion annually during that decade. That's about $10 billion in today's money. A huge number, but not so surprising when you consider that as many as 300,000 inhabitants were addicted to heroin around that time, and the average yearly cost of supporting an addiction was $8,000. It may have already been suffering economically, and its population may have therefore been predisposed to a long heroin epidemic, but that heroin had to get to them first. And it did so continuously, by way of the French connection, and after that the Golden Triangle. By contrast, most of the cities comprising what became the American Rust Belt remained largely unaffected by this heroin epidemic, because they were nowhere near the supply. But as we now know, this all changed in the last decade of the 20th century. So how did it finally get to these places? To answer that, here's Sam Kinones again. What happened was our healthcare system, unlike every other healthcare system in the world, began to very, very aggressively and heavily prescribe these pills for people who were in pain. Post-operative pain, chronic pain, wisdom tooth extraction, all kinds of new things got got not just dosed with opioids, but it was like enormous doses and numerous refills. Why? Well, there's this idea that Americans cannot handle pain. Oh my God, douse it, douse it. And of course these pills now, they're supposed to be non-addictive, right? That's what everyone's telling us. So it doesn't matter how many of them you prescribe. So pretty soon these kids are using and then it's, oh yeah, I'm still in pain. And so the doc prescribes more. And, and after a while the kid's addicted and then after a while doesn't get any more pills, the doc says, no, 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 that's it. And then turns to heroin. And, and dies. I, I tell you, I'm serious. I've heard a, at least a dozen stories like that. And I know that they're all across the country. Ellen Early's daughter, Sage, was a young mother doting on her 16-month-old son, Julian. In 2017, the 22-year-old needed to have her wisdom teeth removed, so the dentist prescribed an opioid to handle the pain. They gave her a five-day supply, and he said, if you need more, just let me know. Sage did call and quickly became dependent, getting several refills before she moved on to heroin. Just 15 months after having her wisdom teeth removed, Sage overdosed and died in an airport bathroom on her way to a fourth round of rehab. That was a clip from a 2019 CBS New York news report. Amazingly, the origin of this absurd suggestion that opioid pills are supposed to be non-addictive can be traced back to a single letter sent to the New York Journal of Medicine in 1980 by Dr. Herschel Jick, who reported just four addictions out of 40,000 patients who were administered powerful pain-relieving drugs. The letter's statement that addiction was rare in those with no history of addiction was subsequently cited hundreds of times by other studies, all of which went towards bolstering the aggressive marketing of opioids by pharmaceutical companies. But it wasn't just the subsequent sudden availability of opioids that made these areas so vulnerable to an epidemic. More subtle geographical conditions also vastly exacerbated the problem. 
first of all, there was uh, great silence surrounding it. People were affected by it who had thought of heroin as being very, very foreign to them and their communities. They didn't think that anything would happen like that. This was something you saw in movies. It was far away. And so there was this real silence surrounding it. Opiate addiction, overdose, withdrawal, all that stuff was so foreign to people. And a lot of families, so many places tried to hide it. And that meant that the next person who got addicted didn't, the families didn't know where to turn. No, there was no community. There was no kind of group that that would help get oriented. And over and over and over all across the country, that began to happen. But in many of these counties, we fund our corners through local county tax base. And a lot of times that means they do not have a lot of money. They do not have a lot of talent pool from which to draw the corner, the small counties, so on. And it was in these counties where the thing was felt most acutely. But the problem was the doctors were overworked already. Ready, didn't have the experience, didn't know what they were seeing, didn't have the budget. And, and so for a long time, I think that was part of what hit it, that, that you, you didn't really have coroners who knew what was going on or medical examiners knew what was going on, could figure it out. And it took a while. It took several years, I would say, before people began to realize, you know what, these people are not dying from heart attacks or they are, but that heart attack is provoked by an overdose and that kind of thing. The remaining part of the story which Sam sketches out in his book, perhaps the crucial part in consolidating the crisis in these places, was a new network of supply that strikingly echoed new, rapid, retail-oriented just-in-time supply chain methods emerging in the legitimate economy at around the same time. And it came about through an unlikely group of Mexican drug traffickers coming from the small town of Jalisco in the similarly small state of Nayarit. Guys from this one town developed a system in Los Angeles, once they migrated to Los Angeles, for selling heroin like pizza and we do in in the United States, where you have an operator standing by to take orders, the addict calls the number, gives the order, the operator contacts one of three or four drivers he has, driving around town with little balloons of heroin usually in his mouth, meets the addict wherever he is, usually a a fast food restaurant parking lot or someplace like that, and they consummate this deal. And so this this way of doing heroin sales, retail heroin sales, after a while, they couldn't kill each other, right? They're all from the same town. So they compete, they compete, profits drop. What they have to do is they have to expand. They have to go somewhere else. So they move to new markets. So new markets elsewhere in Southern California first, and then new markets elsewhere in the Western United States, Portland, Oregon, Albuquerque, New Mexico, Denver, Colorado, various places. And it's finally in the late 90s when they make the jump over the Mississippi River, where black tar heroin has never been seen before in the Eastern United States. It's really a, a Mexican drug sold only in the Western United States. They go over across the river, land in Columbus, Ohio. And it's at that moment when you get these two forces just colliding in Columbus, Ohio first in that whole region around Columbus, Ohio. That's why I wrote about these guys, because they were the first to figure out and then systematically exploit with their system this coming market for heroin that was promised by by all these pills uh, being so massively prescribed. When I said earlier that heroin is only urban, if that's as far as it can get, this is what I meant. The common feature of places with heroin problems is not the city, but social isolation, despair, institutional neglect, anime. These are the conditions that make heroin seem appealing. But the heroin needs to get there first, and how it got there is through a series of supply chain innovations that made it easier, even preferable, to sell heroin in smaller places 
rather than in the big city. Certainly these crew leaders understood that if they could unlock the power of retail, that retail is more profitable than wholesale, except for the retail and the drug business is very risky. You get arrested all the time. They realized that what cops and the public and the media and the politicians thought was a successful drug bust is when they caught people with lots of dope, money, and guns. And they designed a system that produced the opposite. No guns. The money all gets sent back to Mexico very quickly. If you have 5,000 bucks, you send it back to mom. And very, very little dope. They knew that a lot of dope meant a lot of years in prison. So you want to have small amounts. So that here is the just-in-time idea, that you get it every other Tuesday, and then you go through it. But at no point do you have 20 kilos of heroin on your premises. You know, You only have maybe two kilos and you go through that at the most, you know, and maybe it's even a kilo. But what I found interesting is they learned just by trial and error, oh, so-and-so got 20 years for that. Well, we're not going to do that anymore. Buy it more frequently and in smaller quantities. And then we understand that 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 won't lead to high prison sentences. But they can understand also that their system was based around the idea that heroin addicts prize a few things more than anything else, reliability above all. You, you got to tell me where I'm going to get my dope every single day, several times a day. No violence. I don't want to get beaten up. I don't want to get robbed. I don't want to get mugged. And also uniformity of supply. So every day I can buy this stuff. I know it will not be weak. I know it will not be cut. It'll be tenth of a gram in every balloon. And it'll be just the right amount. And that will make me happy. Those are the three things that heroin addicts, above all, prize. And they designed a system that, that satisfied all that and at the same time was the opposite of what the public and the police and the media thought was a great drug bust. So it never seemed to a lot of people like the police brass, like these guys were much of anything because you never found the diamond encrusted pistols and the jet skis and the stacks of cash and a lot of dope. It was always just pittance. You know, I went to one guy's bus one time. This guy had a few sticks of uh, Walmart furniture, uh, a small little flat screen TV, some porno, Mexican porno and shoot 'em up movies and a big pile of clothes. That was it. That's all the guy had. He had, he had like a, just nothing. In the midst of a global pandemic that has exacerbated already rampant inequality, precarity and pervasive economic and social despair, it's reasonable to assume that demand for pain relief has increased since the 1990s period that Sam covers in his book. But things have also gotten much worse on the supply side of the global opioid trade since then. Right now, there are labs in China, and more recently Mexico, which have the capacity to manufacture and sell synthetic opioids like fentanyl and carfentanil online to anyone in the world. Respectively 50 and 100 times more potent than heroin, and completely odorless, these drugs are much cheaper and much easier to make and distribute. Just a kilo of fentanyl has a street value of approximately $2 million, and the equivalent of just a few grains of salt is enough to kill someone. Our modern, globalised, self-regulating, just-in-time economy has enabled opioids to travel far beyond the cities that they became associated with in the latter half of the 20th century. Free from the limits of the post-war global supply chain, now more than ever, the geography of opioids has reached its final, natural place alongside a modern geography of economic and social despair. 
But the situation isn't completely bleak. Where I spoke to Sonia in Amsterdam, the failed architecture office adjoining the Ouderkirk in Amsterdam's red light district, was an area not too long ago filled with hundreds of people using heroin openly on a daily basis. Here's Sonia describing the situation now. I think the, I don't know who, but I think something like the government, I have not so much understanding about that, but they make a seat to each other and they let uh, the people who are addicted, you know, um, they ask them if they want in a project, you know, that they can work something by a farm, you know, just easy work. They catch five euro for it for, for, or 10 euro for a whole day, you know, that they have to do something. Uh, what they do, the free heroin now, you know, the, the, the people who just don't want to, to kick off, okay, let them. But now they, they, they give the medicinal uh, heroin. They make it in the, the Fusi Hospital. It's here in Amsterdam. And um, then the, the, the guys, it's all about my age, so uh, uh, over 50, yeah, 60. And they have to go in a uh, um, room. Some they shoot, some they sniff, some they smoke. And uh, that downs the criminality. Because for heroin you do everything. Because I, you know, I I, I compare the heroin with GIB, the, the, the GHB from now. It's the her, it's the heroin from the time before. So 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 I see it, eh? Because it's also an 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 physical addiction. That's heroin too. You do everything for that. Just uh, you have now also medis medicinal uh, um, GIB. You have that yeah. also. Just they are now m more quicker with to solve the problem. Okay, when yeah. we give we give them free, you know, under uh, supervised, you know, on the cameras and everything, you know, you can do your thing. But then the, then they don't have to go on the street to sell the body to you know to the things, and that's such a good change. More uh, pensions. You know, so sort of treating you as human beings, you know. Yes, you? yes, yeah. yes, exactly, exactly. What Sonia's describing here is a policy response which prioritizes harm reduction and regulation over abstinence and prohibition, acknowledging that heroin addiction is a medical condition which needs treatment rather than punishment and control. In spatial terms, what this amounts to is a more serious and sober engagement with the possible places where heroin use and supply could happen in order to minimize the negative impact of law and order policies, organized crime, poverty, and desperation that usually accompany widespread use of opioids. But if there's one thing that this meandering historical geography was meant to illustrate, it's that our economic system benefits from mass addiction to a powerful pain-relieving drug. Whether it be in the neutralization and criminalization of the poor, homeless, and marginalized, the enrichment of pharmaceutical companies, or the support of corrupt anti-communist regimes. Why prevent places from lapsing into despair when there's such a lot of money and power to be gained from doing nothing? <laughs>